Welcome, everyone. Good afternoon. Sunday, March 12th. Something happened this past week. <laughs> a couple weeks ago, things looked really good for the Bulls and uh, shows you what a week's difference can make. So here we are. Very timely uh, room. We've got a tremendous lineup of participants for today. Uh, before we get into it, and I'll dispense with too many of my comments, uh, as is our custom, uh, this date in history. Um, I'll go through these quickly. Uh, March 12th, 1933, FDR uh, gave his first fireside chat uh, during the Great Depression. That was eight days after his inauguration. In uh, 1938, uh, Germany annexed uh, Austria. Um, that, was in, that was in 1938. And then finally, these aren't any order of importance. I just picked them out at random, try to mix it up. March 12th, 1948, uh, James Taylor was born. So there you have it. Anyway, to the matter at hand. Um, you know, since uh, Wednesday of this past week with Silicon Valley Bank's news, uh, the world's been turned upside down. Um, so a lot of questions, a lot of spaces, a lot of conversation about what does this actually mean? Um, you know, prior few months, there's been a tug of war between the bulls and the bears. Uh, Mark had been stuck in a trading range. Um, bulls believing, you know, there's no landing. Inflation's not a problem. Rates will continue to come down. Fed will ease. Liquidity will resume. Uh, and back off to the races. Um, the bears, on the other hand, inflation being sticky. Uh, rates not, not you know, coming down at a, a slow rate for a variety of reasons. Cost of capital continuing to normalize and what that normalization of cost of capital uh, would mean for all asset classes. So I guess when you see, you know, everyone's got opinions about what's happened and hopefully together we can try to uh, get, gain some clarity on what this all means. Uh, KFAB I think is gonna, uh, uh, KFAB's gonna speak first and uh, we've also got um, Tom Thornton, Dave Nikoski, Michael Kantrowitz. But, you know, um, is this, is this going to cause a financial crisis or not? Or is it just a one-off? Or could it manifest itself into an economic crisis? Um, what will the Fed do? Will the Fed cut? It seems to me the Fed's kind of stuck. Um, they can't really cut. Um, can't really raise, um, you know, will this cause contagion? What does it mean for the financial system? What does it mean for the economy? What does it mean for companies that whose business models depended on an incredibly low, uh, cost of capital? Um, you know, some have said, and it surely looks like that, uh, you know, whereas in 2008 and you had Lehman and AIG. Um, those are the linchpins of uh, what brought everything down. You know, is this the Lehman moment for technology? Um, so a lot of, lot of questions. I mean, imagine you're the Fed. You know, on Thursday, there was, what, 300,000-plus uh, jobs announced? <laughs> and then to be followed in short order by the second biggest bank failure ever. So does this change anything? Or is this just an idiosyncratic issue? I mean, rates fell precipitously on Friday. Um, 
I don't know, the market may be anticipating the Fed's going to have to do something on the race front. Who knows? But I just wanted to set the table with the questions, and I'm sure we're going to have a lot of interesting discussion around this. So let's kick it off by um, going to KFAB first. KFAB, welcome. Uh, good to see you, my friend. What's up? Hey, George. Uh, thanks. Uh, it's hard to believe uh, you've been nice enough to have me on your uh, dais uh, for almost 15 months now. And um, the reason why I started this ridiculous account <laughs> named after Ric Flair uh, and, and professional wrestling concept of kayfabe um, a little before that was I thought I could. Um, well, first of all, I saw some major storm clouds on the horizon, and I thought that my analytical process could, you know, add something to kind of the, the broader public um, conversation and and. You know, my uh, arrogant part of it is maybe help some people. Um, and, I, you know, over that 15 months since I've been doing these, I've been trying to focus primarily on the cycle time frame because that, it, you know, all of these questions that you asked are hugely important, um, but it's very easy. I call it the fog of cycles. Navigating cycles are so difficult already because of what's real and what's fake. That's what kayfabe's all about, right? That's what professional wrestling is all about, confusing people into not really, you know, they think it's real, it's kind of fake, you know, it's, it's all these things simultaneously. And um, so I've tried to focus on the cycle time frame um, primarily, not, not that, you know, trading bear market rallies or you know, um, speculating, all these very, you know, risk management, all these things are hugely important. Um, but I think that the cycle is so misunderstood uh, and, and lacks in focus a lot of the time because we all get caught up in the day-to-day. -day. And this, so I thought I'd start there because what better time than when there's an acute potential crisis, people talking about bank failures and everything else, try to put this all in the a cyclical context so that we don't miss the forest for the trees, right? So, um, what I'm, what I'm going to share now is not analysis. It's, it's my view of what's objective, right? So objectively, we had a 13-year expansion that was really only interrupted by what I call kind of a fake recession, meaning that we didn't get the normal um, Schumpeter's destruction in 2020 because of all the government support. So you didn't get bankruptcies. You didn't get, you know, kind of the normal stuff that happens. So that's a very long expansion. Um, and that builds up all kinds of issues in market economies, particularly those that are credit-based uh, with a fractional reserve banking system, right? So those, those are all, I think everyone could agree, a matter of fact. Um, the economy started to slow in 2021, right? Uh, late 2021, the, the, the rate of growth started to decelerate, and we've had this inflation crisis. Again, I don't, I don't want to get bogged down into the the, the specifics on the who's and the why's, right? There's, there's room for debate on that, but it happened. Um, and since really Q1 into Q2 of last year, long leading indicators, um, reliable ones, and you had Lakshman Achathan from Ecreon back in August on your space that I participated in, started turning down in a recessionary fashion. When I say long leading, they forecast nine to 12 months out historically. Uh, and they started turning down in a recessionary fashion about this time last year. Um, and they have not turned back up yet. Okay. So again, those are objective. And people argue about, you know, it's different this time with yield curves. Do leading indicators matter anymore? Again, you can speculate on all that you want. But the, the fact is that they're, uh, they've gone down in a recessionary fashion. 
um, and they haven't turned back up yet. It, now, I will address one thing. There's a lot of confusion. People see certain things from Equity and they don't understand what the weekly leading index is and how it fits in their broader framework. So again, I'm not going to get bogged down into that, but just take my word for it that the, the law of leading indicators as of Lakshman's last public appearance in, um, I think it was in late February, uh, we're, we're, hadn't turned back up yet. So that's where we're at. That's all independent of a, what's going on with the Fed, what's going on. And by the way, those long leading indicators turned down before the Fed started um, tightening, right? So this, is, this was all in the pipeline before interest rates started going up significantly, okay? So I think that's a hugely important aspect. And, and for example, ECRI's forecast had nothing to do with Fed tightening at the time, okay? So that's all, in my view, objective. That was heading into this period. Uh, now, the fog of cycles aspect comes into people don't understand what a recession is. When I say people, a lot of people, obviously there are some, but you know, people get bogged down in two consecutive quarters of negative GDP. So some people thought we had a recession in the first half of last year. Um, people think that you know, uh, the service sector has to contract in a recession or that the consumer has to weaken first. I mean, there's all kinds of, you know, crazy, I, I call it the, you know, kind of flat earthing alchemy. <laughs> there's all kinds of not efficacious uh, ways of, of viewing the business cycle. Um, so the business cycle is an organic aspect of a market-based economy. And it's a, when, when you get a contraction, when you get recession, it is when you get a feedback loop between sales, income, production, and employment. How those act and intertwine with each other are variable, they're inconsistent, they've been different in past cycles, they're always different. Um, sometimes certain parts of the economy lead, sometimes it's coming out of a high nominal, high inflation environment, other times it's not. So one of the issues that we've had in this cycle, I think, is because the last two major recessions that we had, again, exclusive of 2020, because it was such a weird one, um, had nothing to do with high nominal, high inflation, right? Most of the you know, experiences that come, come with those kind of environments are before the vast majority of people's experience, even George, right? You came, I think you came into the business, what, in 81 or something? Um, so right kind of comm commensurate with the last period of, of any kind of high inflation. So a lot of what people are experiencing right now, they get, you know, confirmation bias and recency bias because of what's happened in the most recent cycles. So a lot of that, you know, again, germane to what's happening this week, people are obviously flying off the handle right away that this is going to be like 08 and that, um, you know, bank failures and all these other issues. And I'm not saying this isn't a serious thing. It obviously is. Um, but it's only natural that in, as I call it, the fog of cycles, that people are going to go back to what their reference point is. And, and that's 2008 for this kind of thing. Uh, I put out a piece yesterday, I'm sorry, I guess it was Friday, going a little bit back with the history of the SNL crisis, which actually has, I would argue, more parallels. And, and that's the other thing, you know, people love analogies and they're important, they help. Um, but because these cycles are always different, you can pull snippets out of all kinds of of, of historical um, periods, they're, they're never the same. It's they they echo, as we've talked about on these spaces before, George. So, um, so I just wanted to start with where we're kind of at, um, and and you know the economy has been decelerating, right? It's noisy, um, but if you look at the cyclical parts of the economy, 
the parts that are the most volatile and that historically most frequently lead the economy into the recession. Again, it's probabilistic. It's not to say you can't have a recession without this happening. That's what made 07 and 08 kind of different is because that was so centric in, in financial um, and, and mortgage-related areas. Um, those are already contracting and have been. Industrial production, uh, even if you look at the jobs numbers last week, and again, I always take the government data the first time around, the first few times around uh, with, a, with, with a grain of salt because they're subject to revisions. But the, the areas that were weak were in manufacturing, uh, were in, you know, kind of the cyclical parts of the economy. Um, so the business cycles unfolding kind of normal the way it would, um, given historical proxies for high nominal deceleration like 7374, 80 to 82. Um, so we're on track. And, and what in, within all this context, what this does, this current crisis, is it introduces an accelerator, meaning that a shock to the system or potential shocks to the system, right? So I'll, I'll, and I'll wrap up with this, is that, um, you know, I've written about this recently, is as late as the first and second week of September of 08, people were still denying that we were in recession, that we'd still have a soft landing. And that was in the midst of Fannie and Freddie going into receivership. Right. It wasn't until Lehman Brothers hit that it was undeniable. Um, you know, Bullard was out even after. <laughs> I think it was the, 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 the minutes came out subsequently from the Sunday or Monday of the Lehman collapse, talking about how resilient the U.S. economy was in, their, in the minutes of the Fed meeting and, and that we would still avoid recession. Right. So, you know, hi history is easy retrospectively. But when you live through it, and this is why, again, I talk about the fog of cycles. Um, the, what we're going through and have been going through is very normal, uh, and that even within the context of a recession, and that um, what in, through all of this lens, what I, I see this news of the past week is a potential accelerant. Again, I'm not saying it is. Sockgen happened. Uh, uh, Bear Stearns happened, and they were kind of accelerators short term, but they weren't the Lehman moment, um, so to speak. Um, so. You know, I, I have no idea if this is going to cause a, an acceleration in the short term, um, but the risks are there. Like the systemic setup remains there. And when you enter these windows of vulnerability, that's when these things happen. Uh, so I think from a risk management perspective, that's how people should view this, which is what if it does happen, you know, let's say the normal odds are 0.001% and it's now 15%. Right. And that's why most of these risk models that people consume in, in, in uh, you know, <laughs> dynamic uh, equal, I call them disequilibrium models from that economists use, um, th that they don't actually model reality. Uh, so if this is a 15 percent probability of a dislocation, that's still not likely. But, oh, God, the people sure as hell aren't pricing that in <laughs> because their models don't work that way. Um, so I'll stop now and uh, appreciate the, the platform. That's terrific, KFAB. Please, please stay there. I'm sure we're going to get into an interesting dialogue. Uh, to continue that, I'd like to go to uh, Michael Kantrowitz, and then after Michael, we'll go to uh, um, Tom Thornton. So, uh, Michael, good to see you. The floor is yours. Hey, guys. Um, actually, a quick question before I just give my comments on to KFAB. Um, I guess it, it sounds like you subscribe to ECRI's uh, work, um, uh, I, I, just real quick, I, I do not. I used to. Okay. Um, I, I know enough now to be dangerous. I've been consuming their research for, you know, 
over 20 years. So um, as, as just a little guy, I don't run money anymore. I don't move, have to move, you know, large amounts of capital anymore. So by the time they come out publicly, I can pretty much backfill what they're talking about because I understand their process at a high level. Um, so yeah, I just, I consume what they say publicly and kind of figure it out from there. So do you, do you know what's in their long leading indicators? Yeah, I, I have an idea. I mean, they're um, everything from, um, you know, profit cycles. They're big into levels and rates of change. Yep. Um, so it, it's as much about the process as it is about the composition. Uh, so having these long leading indicators uh, that turn first, and it's both level and rate of change, and then followed by you know, the, something like the weekly leading index, which is more like, you know, maybe two quarters out, followed by the short leading and then obviously coincident. But, you know, they, like, for example, back in the late 80s, I think it was uh, Jeffrey Moore with, um, yep. um, uh, what was it, the JOC at the time, uh, came out with the index on non-traded industrial commodities, for example, right? So that's the kind of thing that people just don't talk about, um, generally speaking. Where, where, where you get stuff that don't, doesn't have futures contracts that, you know, stuff like burlap and, and um, you know, cardboard boxes, you know, stuff like that that's highly sensitive to the business cycle and the industrial cycle um, that, you know, for example, recently, that kind of stuff didn't move with the China reopening narrative. Uh, so you had all the speculators rush into copper and 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 crude oil and that kind of stuff where, you know, burlap, I didn't, uh, you know, I'm not saying burlap specifically, but that kind of stuff didn't move anywhere near as much. Um, so it's, it's th that kind of differentiator to me, it's, it's, it's less so about the composition of the indices. Cause again, they've been building these, you know, they, it goes back to Jeffrey Moore in the fifties um, and they've been refining them um, basically ever since. Yeah. No, he, he basically wrote the book uh, on this. Uh, I think it's called like business cycles or something like that. Uh, it's an orange colored book that, that is really where Locke basically took, you know, inherited, inherited all that. Uh, from from uh, at some point, so you know, I was just I was asking if you knew anything specific because you know, the, at the end of the day, there are only so many things that have long leads on the business cycle, um, and I don't think it has anything to do with profits. I would you know, I can't see anything in there, but things that lead by twelve to fifteen to eighteen or twenty four months. I mean, there's literally only a certain amount of things uh, that are cyclical like that, and you mentioned one thing. And so what, what are those things? It's, it, it, is, it is like ch uh, changes in interest rates, uh, and it's all rates of change. Uh, changes in money growth, uh, the yield curve, even the change in the Fed funds rate. And so what a lot of people don't understand, is just to, I, I just want to expand on a point you mentioned, which you said that a lot of their indicators were starting to roll over before the Fed started to raise rates. And the reason is if you're trying to model the business cycle, it's not the level of the Fed funds rate you, you're going to use, it's the change in the Fed funds rate and the change in money supply growth and the change in mortgage rates or, or, or long-term rates or the change in the yield curve, which is obviously a function of those. And so if you think about it, um, money growth, M1 money growth, which exploded during the pandemic to the upside, M1 money growth peaked in February of 2021, which is right around where the change in the Fed funds rates peaked and long-term interest rates peaked. So, you know, when you're modeling and a lot of the charts, I, I show a lot of these charts, like the change in the Fed funds rate, that's how you model profit cycles and GDP or PMIs and things like that. The irony is that the, the beginning of a tightening cycle, if you really think about it, 
it doesn't actually begin with the Fed raising rates. Uh, in other words, and think about it, and the same thing for any of those variables I just mentioned. It doesn't begin with money supply contracting or 10-year or yields going up necessarily. It begins with the period at which these easing cycles that always precede tightening cycles stop uh, at a, you know, from a rate of change basis. So, um, this, you know, so, so that's why sometimes these long leading indicators can lead the actual beginning of a first rate hike. Now, if you think about all the slowdowns we've had in history that didn't have anything to do with the tightening cycle, it, it, it you know, let's think about, um, I mean, even, even last year, last year, the economy slowed for a number of reasons, but part of it was that we basically exhausted all the benefits of the easing cycle, right? So if I'm, if I'm easing and easing and easing and easing and I stop easing all of a sudden, or, or if mortgage rates are going down and down and down and down, and then they stop going down, that is a effective tightening. It's never something that's going to send us into a deep slowdown or a deep recession, which is what we actually need to get. Uh, which would need pre, need to be pre, uh, would need the Fed to actually raise rates and mortgage rates to go up, but um, I, I think that's an important point that you know is getting in, in not too deep in the weeds of macro forecasting, but it's it is about rates of change, and that's why those indicators did start turning down before, uh, and, and and that's important because this Thursday, which is March sixteenth is the first rate, is the one-year anniversary of the first rate hike from the Fed, where they went 25 basis points. But again, all of these other indicators, change in the Fed funds rate, change in long rates, change in the yield curve, have all been flagging a slowdown up until now, even though it wasn't had nothing to do with the first rate hike, because we had gone from such easy conditions to basically neutral conditions, which again, is a net tightening, not a big tightening, but it's a net tightening. Now going forward, and, and, and this is why people don't, I think, appreciate the lag of how long it takes these things to happen, which is why they're asking, oh, is, is this tightening cycle even having an impact? That is all ahead of us. You know, if we think about why the economy slowed down over the last year, it's not because the Fed raised rates, you know, at least outside of housing. It's probably more about that slight mild tightening from the end of the easing cycle that, that obviously stopped uh, uh, well over a year ago. Plus the pandemic issues going away, supply chain issues going away, and, and, and all of that. So, like when we look at manufacturing PMIs that are, you know, below 50 in many countries around the world, that's not really because the Fed's been raising rates or or, or other central banks have been raising rates. Uh, that is largely ahead of us, which is obviously kind of a scary thought, but that's just the reality of the, these historical cycles. So that was that was one of the first things I just wanted to to touch on. Um, you know, I agree. I think you made a point as well that it's been a long time since people have seen this, this combination of, of, of tightening that has preceded every single recession. So, you know, I, I would, I, I would stick my neck out and say there are parts of the cycle that do repeat. And it's those parts of the cycle that are at the core of why we have a business cycle and why we have recessions. Um, at least going back to the 50s, every single recession was preceded by three things. And I've said this a bunch of times on Spaces. But it is, it is when the Fed's raising rates, when you get a corresponding commercial bank tightening cycle, tightening lending standards, which today we have in spades, 
end an inflation problem. And an inflation problem doesn't have to be a 40% rise, you know, 40 year high in core core headline inflation, which is what we had we had today. You know, even in 07 and 08, food and energy inflation was up 15%. That's an inflation problem. And that's the worst kind of inflation problem for US consumers that have consumption baskets of 30 to 40 to 50% of food and energy. Uh, so we've had inflation problems before every recession, not broad ones like we have today, but it's really in food and energy inflation, which has been the uh, big delineating factor between a Fed tightening cycle that leads to a soft landing or one that leads to a hard landing. For reference, in 2018, food and energy inflation was about 3%. In 1994, which preceded the 1995 soft landing, food and energy inflation was about 2%. Last year, food and energy inflation hit 23%. In 2006, 7, and 8, we had 15% food and energy inflation. In 1990, 1991, same, similar backdrop, I think we hit 10% food and energy inflation. So from the highest starting point, it's all about probabilities. And these are the highest probabilities from these three factors that have preceded every recession, or at least had not been present during soft landings that we have, that we have today. Uh, and, and they're all flagging the same thing. Uh, and so I guess that's, that's kind of part of the point I wanted to make. Um, and, and then, you know, a lot of the pushback around, well, is, is it, it's not 08 because of all these reasons. We're not rate sensitive. You know, housing obviously plays a huge role into the magnitude of a, of, of a downturn. And, you know, in 2000, housing in 2001, in the recession in 01, housing basically went sideways. There was no downturn in the U.S. housing market whatsoever. If you look at building permits, housing starts, certainly prices, nothing went down. We just went sideways, which gave us the most mild recession in U.S. history. And then the opposite, nine years later, in 07, you know, 07 08, or eight years later, obviously the, one of the worst recessions, housing crashed. So I, this housing backdrop is problematic for different reasons. It's already a lot worse than 2000 in terms of the downturns and pricing and, uh, and activity. And we haven't even seen job losses yet. Uh, and, and again, that goes to the, the spike in interest rates here. So um, I, th that's kind of just, I guess, what I wanted to lay out in the back in the, the highest level kind of stuff, you know, before we start getting into the nitty gritty, which is where all the noise, you know, often gets gets uh, brought up. Yeah, if I, if I could just throw something in here uh, quick, because it segues perfectly, I think, with uh, what you just said, Mike, is um, there's a, a, a New York Times article by Mark Holbert from June 10th of 2007 entitled, Is It Just a Strong Market or the Bubble Part Two? Okay, and the reason why I bookmark it is I, I come back to it periodically, obviously. And in it, he references an academic study called Overreactions, Momentum, Liquidity, and Price Bubbles in Laboratory and Field Asset Markets, right? It sounds like an academic paper, uh, in 2000 in the Journal of Psychology and Financial Markets. And I'm, I won't read all of it, but I'm going to read one section here where he's talking to one of the authors, a Professor Porter. Um, is that investors become, and, and they studied 150 simulations uh, of various types of investors and education levels, and uh, basically studying bubbles and manias, so through simulations. 
uh, is that investors become largely immune to bubble-causing behavior only after living through the bursting of two successive bubbles. Because of this, the typical pattern is for a burst bubble to be followed by a somewhat less extreme version of the original. Stop me if this sounds familiar. A phenomenon that some call an bubble echo. This pattern has appeared so consistently and so regularly in psychological experiments, Professor Porter said, that you can almost set your clock according to it. Right. So the basic premise of this article was that what was going on in the equity markets were not really emblematic of an echo bubble. Um, and, and, you know, that wasn't actually the professor uh, was, was bearish at the time, but <laughs> that, uh, you know, the equity markets weren't displaying an echo bubble. What I would argue is we just ex we're coming off of a dual echo bubble. Right. You have uh uh, come, uh, uh, of course, the real estate market's different um, than, than 08. Uh, it's never exactly the same. Of course, the mania coming out of, of, of the COVID lockdowns in equity markets are different than the dot-com bubble. Um, but they're both kind of dual echo bubbles, uh, and they're displaying many of the same uh, characteristics. Um, so I just wanted to throw that in there. That's actually one of my favorite papers. <laughs> so you put a big smile on my face. Because I haven't heard any, uh, that, that in a while, um, but you know, and, and the issue with with that, or, you know, in reality, is that you know we don't have bubbles that are happen back to back to back to back. Is that is that generation people forget? A new generation of investors comes in, and people forget. And and that was you know kind of one of the, one of the last things I wanted to say is that this combination, this backdrop we have that again it just increases the probabilities of problems. We have an inflation problem. We have a Fed tightening cycle. We have commercial banks that are tightening standards. You know, when 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 things go bad, it's hard, you, this is not you can't call that an accident. Yeah, you know, I often tell my wife I don't really believe in accidents. You know, if someone was texting and driving and they crash into somebody, that's not an accident. Somebody was doing something stupid that they shouldn't have been doing. That's that's you know again things. Uh, so that's that's one example. Uh, and, and as things start to break here, uh, and, and and I think most of the problems we're going to find are when jobs jobs get hit. These are not accidents. These are conditions that stem from these a uh, higher probability backdrop that bad things are going to happen because we're tightening uh we're tightening the backdrop from a very loose backdrop for long periods of time and today it is now 16 years it's a very long time it is a record period in time if you go back 200 years in history as far back as you can go there's never been a period of 16 years where between these three conditions of, of inflation, the Fed, and commercial banks all tightening at no point between 07 and, and basically coming into this, this year or last year, have, have we had those conditions? And that is by far the longest time in history. So there's a lot of people, obviously, in the industry that weren't working in 07 or that even though that, that, that were working have just their muscle memory has softened out and recency bias has taken over. Yeah, and, and the, other, the other part of that, again, just based off of what you just said, is that this is not only the United States. That, that's what makes this exponentially more dangerous from a cyclical perspective, is that this is a global phenomena in a synchronized fashion where you've got global central banks cutting, you know, basically chopping away at, at the business cycle in the most synchronized fashion in history. We've never seen central banks in uniformity tighten the way that they've been tightening. Um, so, again, 
probabilistic. What does that mean? <laughs> Great. So let's go, let's turn the conversation a little bit to, uh, I want to bring um, uh, Tom Thornton in and Dave Nikoski. So this question's for, um, well, let, let's, I'll tell you what, let, let, let's go to, let's go to Tommy first and then I want to get in, and Dave, and then I want to get into a uh, particular um, uh, Silicon Valley and what this might mean. So, uh, Tommy, give it to you for a few minutes and then turn it over to Dave. Welcome, sure. Tom. Hey, hey, everyone. Um, well, just uh, I have to say, uh, KFAB, that was um, fantastic, uh, really surmised perfectly. And I, I will say uh, there's never um, a similar type of crisis that happens exactly the same way. And they start from different places. Uh, we've seen um, in my career, I've seen different types of crisis that happened. Um, I remember long-term capital was something that uh, it, it sort of came out of nowhere and was very, it, there was a lot of accelerant in, um, in, in the markets on the downside, a lot of fear in the markets. And um, the, you know, the banking, you know, the, you go back to New Century and New Century Financial was a subprime and they, they blew up. And that was sort of the start of the financial crisis of, of what we saw in central banks. They, you know, I think it was uh, Ben Bernanke said everything was contained. And uh, now we have, um, you know, again, I, I don't think that uh, 2020 was a real uh, recession at all as well. I think it was, uh, it was something unique and um, I, different and something we'll probably never face again, hopefully. <laughs> And uh, this one is, is coming at a time where, you know, we have this raging inflation problem. Uh, the Fed has a mandate to tighten uh, pretty hard uh, to control inflation. And I've said on spaces uh, basically all year, there's two issues that I think uh, we're dealing with. Uh, one, inflation doesn't come down quick enough and stay sticky. And then the second is if inflation starts to reaccelerate, and that is something we saw uh, a lot in the '70s, where we saw these cycles uh, where inflation dropped and then it came back up in different aspects. And you know, Tuesday's CPI is going to be really, really important. Uh, I, I honestly, I think we're going to probably see uh, a CPI that's going to be a little hotter than what most people want. Um, I, I, I think that's the the problem it's going to be sticky in a lot of different places um the fed's in a tough place now because they have this bank that uh is blowing up and i, I think we're really in a wait and see mode because I, I i think honestly we have to wait and see what uh regulators are going to do what uh i mean janet yellen was basically out today saying that um they're going to do their best to uh help depositors and they're not going to bail out the bank partly because they have uh regulation in in place after the great financial crisis where they don't need to bail out banks anymore that's going to be challenged and the the thing is also you have a lot of bidders that are coming in to try and scoop up the assets from svb and and that's a good thing um you know capitalism uh, has companies that fail and they fail sometimes um, 
for all different types of reasons. Uh, this one, you can lay blame on a, a bunch of things, whether it's the, the, the tier one capital that they mismanaged, bought long-term uh, uh, debt that and not hedged. And I'm not, I, believe me, there's, there's a hundred different uh, people on this spaces that, that have a much deeper understanding of, of all those uh, uh, issues, why they are blowing up. Uh, I, I think it's just important to see what is going to happen. Uh, it's probably going to happen, I would say, before the future is open today. But I, I, I think that the, the risk is still there for uh, for overall in the market. And I, I think the, the big problem is that uh, this will create shockwaves. And it, it's kind of like an earthquake. And I've, I used to live in California, and I've been through a few pretty good sized earthquakes and you have these aftershocks that come shortly after and you never know when they're going to come and that i think is going to be a problem i think you're going to see uh the tech sector uh have some real problems uh as far as demand and when i say that you have all these these startups and companies that are within private equity firms that are are private um venture firms um that have uh, private companies that they're starting up, those companies are going to have to cut back on their spending. And that spending is going to start with AWS, cloud. You're going to see hardware uh, sales slow. You're going to see software sales slow. And that's going to take time. That's going to be quarters. So I think that this is a much bigger problem longer term in the micro for these companies. Uh, but I, I'm, I'm really, I'm, I kind of heard of the Bill Aikman spaces yesterday. I've been seeing the venture capital guys, the all-in people. Um, you know, they're they're really panicky right now, and I I think that um, I mean, kind of goes to show that uh, you're a libertarian until you're not, and then. Uh, it, it really it gets real. But look, this is what happens when the Fed raises rates and there's a, a uh, hiking cycle that happens. Things break. Um, it was bound to happen. And I think that uh, KFAB and uh, Michael, um, you, you guys said it perfectly with the macro situation of what's happening. So it's an unfortunate situation. I feel horrible for people if you're affected by your money's tied up or it you know look god forbid it it, it is lost uh it's a it's a terrible situation but financial situ financial firms are fragile and we have to remember that I've, I've been through a bunch of different cycles i've seen financial firms blow up and die i actually um i was in the bear stearns office uh the, their headquarters the night before they filed and they blew up uh a friend was, uh, he did this uh, Techapalooza, he called it, and it was like a tech trader uh, get-together, and we all shared our best opinions, and they had this giant conference room that was like circular, big table, and all they did that night was talk about Bear Stearns credit, and they were fine. And when I was walking down, um, and if anybody's been to the Bear Stearns, uh, now JP Morgan headquarters uh, in Midtown, 
there's this like beautiful wood staircase and I was walking down. I swear to God, I was looking at people and I thought it was like the Titanic, just like dead people, that last scene where they all came back because everybody was so glum. But look, things happen like this. It's a, it's, it's finance. There's risks and people forget about risk. And I just, I know that's kind of oversimplifying it, but financial firms are fragile. And I, I worked for a hedge fund that, that, that died an untimely death as well. So it's, it's very, very tough right now. So I'll let you guys continue. Thanks. Thanks for that, Tommy. Uh, let's go to uh, Dave Nikoski and uh, Dave, uh, I don't know, whatever's on your mind. And, and I do want to get to the question as to uh, Dave, you can address it or if you don't, some of the others can, but I do want to get to the question. Everyone has an opinion about what the likely response is of the, uh, of uh, of the regulators dave yeah i'm here thanks for having me on george thanks for uh everyone joining us um you know i i i think uh, i'm just going to go back to you know my my thoughts on our call that we did on february 23rd and you know i had indicated that you know the financials were the the canary in the coal mine and you know as part of my three-legged stool you know, observing trends. And unfortunately, you know, I have the easy part compared to these guys and guessing the market cycles, I should say, with with obviously a lot of information and in in their hands. But, you know, fortunately or unfortunately, I have to look at charts and come up and deduce, you know, what I'm seeing. Um, So my hat's off to you guys, because I I know a lot of you were in that camp. It's just timing it is, is the real you know, uh, uncertainty for anyone. And, you know, fortunately I get to look at charts and go look at inflection. So I've got the easy part. Thanks for making the charts for me guys. Um, you know, uh, I, I went back after Tommy's comments about long-term capital and just to give you an idea of the day that long-term capital was announced, um, the market moved down almost two and a half weeks and uh, for a total loss of 15% to give you an idea of what, what that circumstance did, you know, that would put us at 3282. <laughs> and I don't know that we get there, but, you know, just, just some perspective on it. Um, you know, I, I don't like, like I said, at that time back on February 23rd, you know, the, the market reached our objective to the upside and we were, you know, uh, swinging bearish on the overall market um, based up, you know, again, what I saw in banks, what I see in the consumer discretionary sector, the retail sector, uh, you know, I, I can't say the charts look favorable. Um, you know, industrials hold up the best. I think any uh, high PE stock, I, I think, you know, not knowing price discovery on housing, um, we just don't have enough, you know, supply on the market. So you're, you know, you, you really don't have that discovery of uh, job losses do go up. And I, I think that, you know, illiquid assets, derivatives, that type of thing are going to be questioned. You know, it's going to be shoot first and, and answer questions later. So I, I think there's going to be a price discovery mechanism um, within the derivative structure. And that, to me, is the other tail wagging the dog. Uh, mark to market, obviously, as we can see uh, in, you know, this SIBB stamp financial statements that, you know, they weren't doing it. And I think a lot of these regional banks don't have, you know, the means that a, a big, you know, Wall Street institution can do in terms of hedging because they haven't had to do it. You know, you're employing someone for 12 years, you didn't have to do a thing, right? And all of a sudden this last year, 
you know, is creating shockwaves. I, I still think that we're in season two, episode three of knowing what rates are going to do. And the uncertainty is, I think, going to push investors to the sidelines in terms of the overall equity market. You know, we will find a bottom. It's not the end of the world. But, you know, I, I think it's it's it creates a lot of uncertainty. Should I have not ended that way, George? That's that's actually a good good thing to uh, talk about. Um, you know, even if we get the big bad news that comes out, that's certainty, and we'll be able to uh, figure out what we want to do after that. Markets hate uncertainty, and that's the point I think uh, you're saying. So, if we do get some certainty, uh, I think the markets could get some relief out of that. And even if it's even if it's bad news, I think that. Um, you get that and uh, we could see some, uh, you know, some stability that that comes into the market. But again, we just all have to wait and see uh, what the headlines are going to give us later today and uh, tomorrow morning. Yeah, I, I think, you know, for the most part, you know, periods like this resolve themselves through time. And pinpointing a day, you know, is it one day later? Is it five days later? I, I think it's going to be time. And it's it's not going to be measured by, you know, you recall the bear markets, you know, coming off of, you know, 2000, the 2000 peak, you know, you were you were having, you know, on the overall equity markets, you were having, you know, four to six percent swings in days. And, you know, they're they're very, very traumatic and very difficult to time. But, you know, at some point, you know, I think that you know, apathy will take place, right? We'll, we'll get volatility levels to come down, but you know, I'm, I'm still skewed bearish. And, you know, the question is, is even if we get through the uncertainty of, of this bank, you know, what is the other one? You know, I, I would think that many banks that are concerned about it, you know, if they fire file shelf offerings, you know, they're going to be put under the gun too. That's, that's the problem here. If anyone does need access to capital, um, to raise, you know, their, their balances on their balance sheet, you know, that's, you know, I guess I'm going to be scouring S3s and I'm a technician and that's what I'm left with. But um, yeah, uncertainty, you know, my other concern would be that, you know, the trust in the U.S. financial system globally, you know, what impacts uh, will it have on the U.S. dollar? And, you know, when you look back at the guilt issue in, uh, in Europe until they, you know, until the government stepped in, you know, that, that stemmed the hemorrhage in the euro and the, in the UK uh, pound. So, you know, I, I would expect that, you know, we're going to have pressure on the U S dollar. I think gold as a, as a commodity did extremely well and the gold stocks did not follow. So you're seeing hard assets um, with real time pricing are better than something again, hidden on, uh, you know, a derivatives desk or illiquid market. And that's going to come in the form of commercial real estate and mortgages. Can I, can I, uh, I'm sorry, George. Can I, can I ask uh, David and Tommy something real quick? Yeah, go for it. Um, so I, I try to conceptualize some of this as like constituents of the market, right? So you, you have the, the buy the dip people that, you know, I don't think they've been deprogrammed or punished enough, clearly, given uh, investor behavior. But if you look at, um, you know, for example, like Dave, I mean, with what just happened in penetrating the 200 day and breaking in the uptrend line off of the, the autumn lows, like what technicians are not flipping bearish here, what CTAs are after having turned positive, getting blown up now, 
Uh, and even Tommy, from a DeMarc perspective, I mean, I don't see any, you know, huge DeMarc setup, for example. Like, I, I'm having trouble looking at uh, or finding outside of specific short-term, you know, one-day, three-day kind of, you know, uh, news-driven movements. But if you're thinking about this on a cycle time frame, I mean, to me, it looks like we had kind of a classic autumn low. I thought we'd get one more move lower, but the Tiramos are... <laughs> article that first mentioned pivot uh blew me out of the water on that um but we've had that kind of you know b wave higher as the elliott wave person might say into the uh you know late january and we've rolled over here i mean again if you look at monthly charts that that's that's what bear markets do this is this is a classic cyclical bear market behavior and i i just with all of these violations of constituents processes I mean, like, I'm, I'm not sure where, who the, and there's not a lot of shorts left based off of what happened in the first month and a half of the year. Um, like, who's the constituent to add money here incrementally? I would agree that um, going into this, that um, the data that we look at hasn't seen a lot of shorting uh, in this. And uh, the one thing, um, the one thing I can say, I mean, that, that I guess I should say, uh, the amount uh, of share short and the notional vol uh, dollar volume isn't that big. But uh, one thing that's um, starting to show up on my radar just technically uh, is that uh, the Goldman Sachs most, sh uh, most short uh, baskets are all within the last five days uh, down about 10%. And usually when they get down around, mm, let's say, 15%, that starts to wake me up that uh, these are you know the shorts are getting a little um, overdone right now. So you could see you know some really wild moves this week. And let's not forget um, we have a whole new class of uh, investors uh, that in this period uh, that we didn't have a year ago, and that's the uh, short-term option call buyers, which could cause. And, and put buyers, which could cause some pretty violent swings uh, intraday. So that's something else that uh, we throw into the mix that is really unprecedented. Hey, Tommy, what, I mean, without I – mean, the, the, the shorted stocks, look at what they did the first six weeks of the year, though. Like, what is 15% drawdown when they're up 80%? Or, like, you know, high beta stocks, you can say the exact same thing. And I'm, I'm, I'm not even trying to debate about where they're going from here, because obviously that's going to all be a function of how this plays out in the next few days. But, like, high beta stocks, the S&P high beta index, an ETF of S&P 500 stocks, was up 26% in the first six weeks of the year. They're down 10% now. Like, how could that get you excited? Getting excited... In in what way? Well, like the same. I'm just making a parallel between the the Goldman Sachs shorted stocks, which are even you know kind of the junk of the junk of a high beta portfolio, that those are down 15. percent Unless I misheard you, that that that's is that start. I'm sorry, is that trying to make you interested to buy them or or something's wrong? Um, okay, so from the end of the year uh, to the peak, the Goldman Sachs most shorted basket, which. I use that as sort of a consensus of of typical shorts in the market, and it's not necessarily the the, the best and perfect um, way of looking at things. But it was up forty one percent in January, 
and then uh, it's now down 22% from that high. Uh, we're still above the December lows, and um, you know sometimes you you get these big swings, and then you have this you know, a bit of a mean reversion um, with the short baskets, and that and that's I mean that that can be said for for other other things as well. But that's just I like to look at what what's going on with the shorts because uh, sometimes it, it 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 works well with the regards to sentiment as far as with positioning and how 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 well people are doing i mean for example if in december it was you know down huge um the the short basket uh, and positioning was offside so i think that if this goes down if we see the market go down uh, a bit more into the midweek and i i can't tell um at this point but i think you could see a fairly decent sized type of squeeze squeeze higher because you're going to lure in a lot of new shorts let's let's uh that, that's interesting uh thread let's move on just a little bit further i want to go to um what the consequence of this is going to be and um uh, what is it is it just it is erratic to silicon valley bank or as we've seen a lot of stuff in twitter now showing a lot of other banks that are off sides with with big unrealized losses. And I think uh, I'd like to turn to Bobby J to speak on that. And then the Carter. So Bobby J. George, George, before um, uh, I have someone that um, is a, he has exposure to SVB and I want to bring him up. um, So I'm I'm going to add him as the speaker. Yeah. yeah, yeah, Bring him up and let's do Bobby. Let's do Bobby J and then the Carter and then, uh, and, and then you're the fellow you mentioned. So, Bobby J, welcome. Good to yeah, see you. Yeah, hi, George. How are you? Uh, so, I think the big story, uh, it's a story that I've been espousing for a year now, is the unprecedented duration bubble. And what has happened here at Silicon Valley Bank is related to what happened with the UK pension fund. Um, we have assets that are sovereign debt that have declined anywhere from uh, 20% long, longer term, 10 year and out, uh, down to down in the case of UK gills, we're down to 40 cents on the dollar. You would look at the price chart and you would say, that looks like a junk bond, but it's double A three. So what we've had over the past um, decade is sovereign balance sheets trying to shield credit risk, focusing on the last bubble, as you guys have been saying here, and transmorgifying credit risk into duration risk. In other words, sucking credit risk out of the system, uh, preventing uh, pandemic recessions, and putting fiscal money out, and then growing uh, government and sovereign debt Uh, as if there was no risk to that. But in the process, when rates were near zero, they created approximately um, 50 trillion worldwide in zero coupon bonds. And that has huge consequences. So um, what has happened here at Silicon is is not different from the UK pension fund. And we're only at 4%. The other thing I know for a fact is that the Fed does not want 2% inflation. Uh, 
the Fed and Treasury are one function, and they would like three or four percent inflation because that's the only plan. If somebody here could tell me what is a better plan to deal with with global debt that is compounding and accelerating uh, due to the number one principle in finance, the power of compound interest, uh, I'd like to hear it. But they want to inflation inflate their way out of it. They tried financial repression and it didn't work. So I think going back to the U.S. banks, I think what we're going to see here is is that the Fed is going to, and Treasury is going to come out with a statement that they're going to wipe out investors, which is in the playbook anyway. By the way, I've ha- if I have the process. Everybody knows what the process is for receivership. This is not, you know, Bill Isaac, George, you'll remember a guy named Bill Isaac who was head of the FDIC and Bill Seidman and all these guys that that have processed thousands of bank failures over their career. There is a playbook for this. And there is another playbook, by the way, for interest rate risk that the OCC has. And Silicon Valley Bank uh, definitely violated uh, the guidelines of interest rate risk. And, you know, I have two sayings today. And one is, um, you know, uh, bank examiners cannot work from home. and they have not been on site. They have not been doing their job. And the other thing is um, the bond market has the Fed surrounded at this point. So what's going to happen is they're going to come out and say that investors have been wiped out, which is going to happen anyway, bondholders and equity holders. They're going to probably offer a temporary haircut to depositors over 250000 uh, uh, 200, Yeah, 250000 And they're going to talk about you know, trying to give them a workout on uh, the balance. They may try to guarantee 60% of the deposits that are over 250,000 or some formula to prevent a run. But I I think that's where they're going. But we are entering a new interest rate regime. And if if this happens with a 4% 10 year, you tell me what happens with a 6% 10 year. So um, that's, that's my, kind of uh, short version of what's going on here. Bobby, you think that's where the 10 years going, by the way? I think eventually is going because I think, um, I think what happens here, if financial stability, we've been talking about this for quite some time, George, you've been talking about it. If financial stability trumps their inflation concern, right? And they always go after the short-term problem, um, that would not be good for long rates. And now we have another problem is that the curve is inverted right now. So if you're the treasury and you have all this debt rolling off and you have to issue new debt, are you going to issue um, T-bills at 5% or are you going to issue 10 years at 3.8 or 4%? And my guess is that we're going to see See, what has happened is the duration, which is the price sensitivity to interest rates. It's not the maturity. It's it's the formula KFAB knows this, the price uh, relationship to yield changes. What's going to happen is that they're going to issue more longer-term debt. We already saw the duration of, of world sovereign debt double since 1990 from 4% to 8%. And that's why um, that's why prices have been so sensitive. And that's why there are bonds on Silicon uh, Valley's bank sheet that are probably down uh, 25, 30 percent. 
So I think, George, eventually um, we're going to see uh, 10-year yields go to 10%. Now, if we have a recession here, that that will trade, yields will trade down temporarily. But I think longer term, we're in a new rate regime. So that's, um, so this problem's only going to intensify from here is, is from, is, is what you're saying, Bobby. Yeah. I, I, there's no way out of this duration bubble. You know, right. the, the, the bond market has the fed surrounded. Mm. Right. So I, I, I think and there it, is a way out, but people don't want to know what that answer is. Well, is it pain free? No, it's a horrible recession and major credit losses at banks, which is, to me, the big problem right now. I, I think this Silicon Valley bank issue is a distraction, uh, not, not an intentional distraction, but I think what's starting to occur in the co commercial real estate market is the, uh, the, this is why I say that the better, again, these are always different, but the better analogy is the SNL crisis. Um, you know, higher rates, they extended risk. It was more of a risk extension there as opposed to duration. But, um, you know, again, you've had 13 years of a commercial real estate market that has not had any kind of reckoning. Um, and all of the stuff that you're talking about, Bobby J, transmuting into that. And, and now you've got these, this duration convexity problem at these banks with this catalyst, you know, <laughs> um, with work from home, with a potential severe recession on the de on deck. I mean, with a, w us having overbuilt massively in retail square footage and all these other things, and now the multifamily and you know it, it's. <laughs> so KFAB, if if indeed what you're saying comes true, what happens? Uh, it's it means more bailouts and it means more expansion of the government balance sheet. I I think eventually, time. but again, if you. You know, I, 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 I've been saying that this is a Frankenstein of 1930 and 1973. Um, so, and, and the reason why I say the 30 example is we had a fake recession in 27. Uh, it was inverted there. We had a huge uh, residential property bubble in the mid 20s, you know, like the Florida one that, that Mr. Ponzi was involved in, for example, uh, that then transmuted into a commercial real estate bubble. We flipped that this time. Um, where the commercial property market kind of peaked first, and then post COVID, you know, coming out of that fake recession, uh, it was it was the the, the residential side that reinflated. Um, but go back and look at what happened to federal banks versus the state banks and the regulatory changes in the twenties that facilitated that it was basically a big consolidation to the federal banks, and it was an ex you know it was like a, an ex uh, uh, an extinction level event for um state banks and obviously they're not it's not going to be the same because we're in a different regulatory regime um but you know look this is why i i tweeted today look at all of the policies that supposedly came out of the, the gfc because of too big to fail banks what did they do they, made they anchor they anchored the power of too big to right. fail banks and screwed small and mid-sized banks right and so, by the way the bigger <laughs> banks don't want to take on um you know, and and adopt these failing banks because then the regulators turn around and they find them for countrywide credit or they find them for WAMU and for other problems that they've had. But I'll say one last thing about this, and that is if you look back at 1969 when rates were going up and then it, it, it caused a recession, bond markets rallied again. But it took almost 30 years for rates to get back down below 4%. 
And anybody who thinks that we're going back to this near zero or sub 2% uh, yield environment is out of their minds. That's all I got. Bobby J, what, what do you have to say to a lot of stuff going on on Twitter, people showing uh, mismatches for like, you know, absolutely. Absolutely. That's, that's what we do. That's how we reach. We, we can reach for risk by look at there's, there's three or four ways you reach for risk, George, you know, this, right. You go down in quality and credit, right. You price credit. Another way to price credit is to lend to a lower quality credit at the same rate. Right. So, uh, there's, there's, there's credit risk, there's duration risk. And the, you know, when you're, when you're cheating and you're going out the risk curve, the job of the fed is to push people out the risk curve. And this time they pushed them out the risk curve, uh, and created a liquidity problem and duration mismatches. So I, listen, I worked with the federal home loan bank. Uh, I was working for a company called Sendero and we were putting in systems for interest rate risk after the SNL crisis. And this should not be happening right now. And when you look at deposits that are very, very liquid and very short term, you know that that is hot money. And now we have, you know, we have yields competing at 5% on a T bill. So why should I be keeping, aside from, from deposit safety, but why should I be keeping uh, my money in a bank at 1%, 2% when I can get a T-bill rate at 5%. So when you look at something like Schwab or First Republic, what, what do you see, Bobby? Well, I don't know about that. I think they're going to try to come out and um, and really batten down the hatches. Uh, and I don't know the answer to that, George. I mean, the good news with Schwab is you can go into Schwab and you can buy T-bills through Schwab, right? So there's not necessarily a need to move your money out. Uh, I'm not saying that that we're not going to get an irrational response because I can't predict that. But, but Bobby J, aren't they kind of trapped? Because to your point, like, you know, people are already talking about, oh, you know, the, the Pavlovian monkeys waiting for a Fed cut right away. Right. Is if they, if they cut right now, they might make the, the balance sheet problem at the banks worse. Because yeah, they, they could de-anchor the long end. That's what I, I agree with that. I agree with that. It might take a while, right? And if, uh, you know, and to Cantro's point, you know, I, I think we will go into recession and, and we could get a 10-year rally in the process. But that would be, for me, that would be the last hurrah. Could, could, so people have been talking about this broader great rotation from equities to back to bonds for years now. Um, obviously not the last few years because rates went back down, but I remember about, what was it, back in 2013, 2014, during the taper tantrum, um, it never really happened. And is this, is this event not the greatest advertisement to push people further, regardless of, of the outcome here? I mean, I was joking with George. I, I was talking to George this morning. I was joking with him. I, I've had my daughter's bought mitzvah money, which was five months ago, sitting in, in an account, which I learned was earning two basis points. <laughs> now, shame on me for letting it sit there. I didn't want to put it in the stocks uh, a, a year ago. But um, this morning, I finally went there. 
not because I'm worried about the bank at all that this money's at, but I'm like, all right, finally got me off my ass and uh, putting it into um, I bonds and the rest into, into treasury bonds. Um, right. And it, so this is not going to, this is going to propel that rotation regardless of the outcome, because, you know, pe- people have been massively undervested for the last 15 years in treasuries. And maybe this gets people off their ass, like even like me, <laughs> Uh, you know, that was sitting, this money was sitting in the back corner, which I kind of forgot about. And so isn't this a broader issue immediately, regardless of the outcome? Yeah, it for is. For banks' profitability? Yeah, no, it is. And we, we have seen uh, deposits level off over the past several quarters. I'll put that chart up again on Twitter. But deposits are declining a little bit, and, and that's part of the reason. But also, Baron, there's something else I want to point out that – because loan demand hasn't been fantastic, um, we have seen banks getting into the business of owning securities. So the securities book at banks uh, from 2008 to 2022 went from 15% of total assets up to, or maybe even lower, 14% up to uh, 24, 25% of total assets. So banks uh, and Silicon Valley Bank, I mean, I I think their loan book was only about 35% of total assets. So why are they expanding their deposit base? And why are they, um, are they in the business of basically doing a treasury ARB? In other words, deposit treasury ARB. And um, so a lot of banks have uh, done less lending and more investment in treasury securities. I want to go back to a point that I think KFAB mentioned about, again, it's about risk. And you know, if we think about mar- why markets rallied in the last four months from the lows of October, it's because risks went away. It wasn't because earnings were going up. You know, China came back. That's, you know, that helped, I guess, incrementally some parts of the world. But you know, if you look at U.S. earnings, nothing's really going up uh, for the last four months. And the aggregate estimates for this year have gone down. Estimates for next year have, have been down a little bit, but obviously um, sell-side analysts don't really start to change those until we get closer towards uh, into uh, closer to next year. And so this whole rally in equities has been PE expansion, which goes again, that's what a bear market rally is. It could turn into a bull, mar- bull market if you get an earnings catalyst, i.e. the economy rebounds. But you know, and that's sure we can debate that, but you know, I, I don't. I certainly don't see that happening. And thus far, it hasn't happened in earnings estimates yet. So, if if this is going to r- remind investors there there's more than zero risk out there in the markets, which kind of effectively was priced in at 4,200 on the S and P and four and a half uh, cre- spread uh, credit spreads, uh, high yield spreads at the you know early February. I mean that that's that's the stuff that just seemed insane to me. It's just that the pricing of risk went so low, and that was when all the no landing nonsense came about. And so again, the the parts of the cycle that repeat themselves in every cycle are the behavioral ones. We've just seen yeah, that play out. Yeah, if I could just make one quick point, because you know Bobby J referenced, um, you know, the fact that they are actually targeting, let's say, three to four percent inflation. They do that by what I joke, uh, focusing their mandate so-called on phony baloney inflation, which is core PCE, right? So when they say they're targeting 2% inflation, that's what they mean. 
And that peaked at 5.4% earlier this year. I mean, anyone who shops on planet Earth <laughs> uh, knows that that number is completely ridiculous, right? And has been. It's nowhere near reflective of what's going on in the, in the broader price level for the consumer. Um, so by them, uh, and we know historically that they, you know, they did various things to underreport inflation intentionally for various reasons. So, I mean, them getting that back to 2% doesn't mean that those of us on planet Earth are going to be paying 2% higher prices. That, that de facto is probably 4 or 5% for, for reality. Yeah, I agree. I mean, 2% inflation is not going to work in terms of, um, of revenues um, and tax receipts. I think George might be having some issues, but uh, what I wanted to do is I wanted to uh, bring up a, a person who does have some SV. Cantor, can you hear me? Yeah, Twitter's like a bucket shop. Yeah, I don't know what the hell's going on. It's just like Robin Hood. They, they can't handle uh, a lot of activity. Just, if you're yeah, just get, you just give it one second here. Let's get this thing going again. Um, hey, George, uh, before you jumped off, um, yeah. I wanted to bring up uh, a person who does have uh, SVB exposure. He uh, and his heading is a, it sounds like biotech, maybe crypto stuff in there. Mm -hmm. That uh, That's his investments. Um, just want to get his point and maybe what he's hearing from from them directly. If That'd he's be great. So be great. Go for I'm it. looking for him. Go for it. Go for it. Let's get Amy into the mix, and um, hopefully the room will, will repopulate. So, Amy, good to see you. What's on your mind? Hi, guys. Good morning, or good afternoon. I don't know what time it is. Daylight savings time has me all messed up. Um, just So, I'm trying to take, like, a, a, a broader view of SVB. You know, I mean, they, their deposits tripled, right? They, had, they have all these VC companies. People are throwing money at them. Right, so they're not making loans. So they go into mortgage-backed securities. Granted, the duration was not a, a wise choice. The 10 years weren't, weren't a wise choice. But, I mean, they weren't actually making, like, risky loans, right? And, and before Peter Thiel told everyone to take their money out of the bank, they weren't really in – I mean, they had a $1.8 billion hole, right, from the – book they sold off so I mean that's I guess in the grand scheme of things, grand scheme of things I didn't, don't think that's an insurmountable amount of money for them to raise to shore up their balance sheet so I, I don't I guess I don't I don't this whole freak out Jason Calacanis and, and Bill Ackman, Ackman and all these like freaking out and the all this stuff like is it is it really justified I mean is this not something that that the FDIC can just, the regulators can go in there and, and get fixed up. I mean, I'm, I'm thinking about going long banks tomorrow, truthfully. So I just wanted to get y'all's opinion on that. A Fed cut doesn't solve this. Absolutely not. And they're not going to cut. Like, I, I don't know why that, I, it, okay, that's another question. Peter Thiel has been pretty vocal about
I think we just lost Amy, George. Oh, boy. All right. Well, this is turning out to be a bit of a freak show, the way... Uh, Government intervention. The way Mr. Capote's just arrived there. Yeah, now... I don't yeah, know. Yeah, the, the varsity has just shown up. The, the, the JV oh, can get off the field. Oh, guys, is there, is there a... Uh, let's try to get Amy back. No, Amy's back. Amy's back. That's fair. Okay. And Mark, Mark, good to see you. I inadvertently made you a co-host, but no matter... Good to see you. I heard, uh, I mean, you've been, congrats, you've been front and center on this whole thing. So why don't you share your wisdom as to uh, state of play and what this means uh, more broadly from a, for banks, not just, um, uh, you know, not just, uh, S, uh, not just Silicon Valley. Well, I think the thing, there's some stuff that's bearish, there's some stuff that's bullish. The stuff that's bullish, even though it's ironic, is if the government and the powers that be can finally let the zombies fail and let people who have taken undue risk get cleaned out and understand that risk, you know, if you take too much risk, you do lose and lose big. Long term, it's very positive because the good actors will keep doing good things and the bad actors will go away. The thing that's bearish and really negative is if they bail out all these crybabies who brag that they borrowed money at zero rates and made 10 to 15 times their investments, these guys who have exposure should get cleaned out. So they learn what risk is about and they get knocked off their high horse. So it's going to be fascinating what the government pulls together. I mean, I talked to Josh this morning, who's a very Rosner, a very plugged in guy, and he thinks they're gonna the government's gonna come up with some long term, you know, deposit assurance fund where the banks kick in, and that's kind of a short term fix. But you know, these banks who are undercapitalized are gonna have to raise a lot of money in equity and they're gonna stop their buybacks and they're probably gonna eliminate their dividends and they're gonna have to run these banks like banks and make good loans, not bad loans, in a lot of these companies who keep borrowing money at no rates and who keep funding huge losses to come up with the 47th food delivery app or the 69th taxi app. I mean, these guys should go out of business and they, they should, you know, demand should be destroyed, which again, ironically is what the government wants. I mean, this is a closet tightening in a big way without raising interest rates. So the government now has a chance to finally unwind and fix all the mistakes they made in 2008 and basically say, if you've fucked up, you're going to get destroyed slowly, but you will. And if you're a good banker, you should be rewarded with market share. So, I mean, it's, it's, it's very, uh, very, very bipolar. And this isn't a time where few people do the actual work, where everyone wants to be right all the time, where shorts have been obliterated basically year after year, so there's very few running around. And, and the, um, the Cubans, the Kevin O'Leary's, the Scaramucci's, the Ackman's, the whole Silicon Valley crew, these, these guys all need their clock cleaned in a major way because they were just bull market, uh, cheap money players. So that's my, that's my bigger picture view. I have no clue what the government's actually going to do tonight. And actually, I don't care, because I think bad guys are going to get what's coming to them. And I'm not, a, I'm not a trading type. There's people better 
uh, at that than me. But it's uh, the Silicon Valley Bank is a plane flying at 40,000 feet falling out of the sky. And uh, I, I put I put what went down. Everyone has their reasons. I put this on Peter Thiel. He he basically sort of caused it in his own ways and is responsible for it because the bank, given time, could have fixed this all up. But clearly Silicon Valley Bank did something to him because he, him and his companies were, were probably big customers. They did something to piss him off. But I enjoy seeing Ackman squirm. I enjoy seeing all these VCs get what's coming to them. And people need the free markets to actually work. And, and, and time will eventually fix this. And if the market goes down, it goes down. So what? Not the first time, won't be the last. So that's... that's. Tom, are you there? Tom, I am here, George. Yeah. I don't know what is going on with this room. This is insane what's happening now. Um, so... Um, well, Mark was really uh, on a yeah. roll, and I, I really enjoy uh, hearing his very frank... Uh, comments and i know we have a bunch of other people that want to get up here i'm trying to get uh see if jim chanos wants to jump up here yeah and a few others i see i really um i have a question mark yeah uh, in in the real world what you're saying is you know the government will let the bad actors and bad companies and the the froth get uh taken out but in reality, we're, we're talking of that's that's a political issue as well. I mean, with the Democrats, do you think there's something that the Democrats are going to have, um, especially since it's in California? Do you think there's um, do you think there's a bias there that won't let that happen? I don't know. That's a good question. I, I just don't know. But I said last night, I mean, how much dry powder do the VCs and private equity have right now? Worldwide, I think it's in the many trillions of dollars. So this can easily be fixed if people want to put their own skin in the game rather than just keep leaning on the government for these for these free lunches. I mean, all these guys, these self-proclaimed billionaires have far more money than brains, and they've all made it on the backs of easy money, zero rates, funding these losers. So now that their bank has failed or jp you know my, my view is jp morgan will buy them out or someone's going to buy them out between 50 cents and five bucks and they'll keep it going but now that this idea has failed and money is no longer free let's have everyone who's been a huge winner let's everyone ante up and put their own money at risk rather than the government all the time i mean you can't you can't have it all ways and watch the upper middle class and lower just suffer because inflation and the cost to live is through the roof and it's not going to get better anytime soon. So part of the solution should be, yeah, the government may back bigger deposits, fine, but all these guys who've made huge sums of money over the last 20 years, if you guys want a car on the racetrack, ante in, pay up. I mean, TPG, you know, show up. Rather than buy out or leverage buy out all these crappy companies, create a bank that actually banks and works and doesn't make stupid loans to the wine industry or, or these crazy apps or fund all these crypto money launderers. So 
politically, I don't know. Politically, it's hard to say because the average person in California does not have 250,000 plus in Silicon Valley Bank. It's Andreessen and those clowns and the Sequoia guys and and that bunch. And and, and they deserve to get their their top knocked off. They really do. So politically, I'm not I'm not a political guy. I, I would never make it in politics, but. We'll see. It's going to be uh, it's going to be interesting what they scheme up. And and, Jan- and Janet Yellen is part of the problem, as is Summers and and all these people who who came out of the GFC. I mean, it's right. just it's just a mess. Thanks for that, Mark. Let's let's, let's bring some others into the conversation here. Um, let's go to uh, oh, Jim Chanos is here. My good friend, Jim. Good to see you. We've got the Carter. So, Jim, uh, if you're there, um might you weigh in on what you see going on specifically, you know, is this just a one-off or, um, you know, is there a more widespread problem with uh, funding problems for a lot of other banks, Jim? Hi guys. I, I, I want to apologize in advance because, um, as soon as I logged in, uh, you started having technical problems and, uh, we all know why that is. So, um, <laughs> in any case, that was a joke. Um, I look, I don't think this is systemic, um, I agree with a couple of your previous speakers about the analogies to the run-up to the SNL crisis. Um, we have a number of financial institutions that have duration mismatch problems, um, as evidenced by what happened with the UK pensions, as one of the speakers pointed out so aptly. Um, most of the lot of, a lot of that risk ended up on central bank balance sheets because of QE. Um, there could have been a lot more in the financial system. There's still a fair amount of it. Um, and consequently, you couple that with the bond-like investment uh, attributes of commercial real estate, where people have been doing deals at cap rates that are just completely insane in the past five years. I mean, apartment buildings at three caps, offices at four caps, industrial i heard i i saw a two-cap deal a couple of years ago for an industrial space um for for the amazon leased warehouse um in uh, in the sun belt and and you know these kinds of things which are really bond equivalents um there has been no reckoning on on terms of uh, balance sheets for those types of things with maybe the exception of offices and a, a few other issues um and so i think that 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 there's a fair amount of, of of this kind of stress in the system but what we saw with silicon bank was much more akin to orange county and ltcm uh the difference this go around is that i don't think the fed is going to use either incidents to uh reverse policy and loosen which they did after orange county uh, after raising rates abruptly in early 93 or uh, late 93 early 94 um, or LTCM when they were uh, they began uh, easing policy, which led us to the last blow off top at 99, 2000. I don't think they can do that this time. So um, we're going to sort of hopscotch from various different duration risk problems and, and, and hope to hell it doesn't turn into credit risk problems. What I have been stunned at in looking at our portfolio you know, is just how sanguine the credit markets have been relative to what's happened and what, what's happened to rates nominally. And, and credit spreads are still, I think, reasonably tight 
for what's happening. And um, I think that that's, that's something that, that, you know, is yet to, uh, is yet to happen. But I don't think Silicon Valley is systemic. The other one other observation I'll make is that, man, oh, man, if, if you don't rethink the, the financial incompetence and innumeracy of Silicon Valley after what happened this weekend, you've got to uh, rethink the way you look at the world financially. I mean, whether it's the tweets, whether it's people saying co- companies aren't going to be able to make payroll. Hey, Jim, um, you, before we got cut off here, maybe, maybe it was something you said, <laughs> you mentioned how, uh, you're surprised how tight credit is. I was just curious, are you referring to literally the last week or the last four months? I was talking about how tight spreads are. Um, I'm sorry, yeah, that's what I meant, spreads, yeah. Yeah, with with everything that's happening in the world, um, spreads are are very sanguine. and, And normally I would expect to see a widening in, in some of this stuff. And it really hasn't happened to the extent that I think it might. Um, that that event, I think, is in front of us. But what I was starting to say before, uh, before Elon cut me off was that um, the other thing that just really underscores this whole episode is that if you think Silicon Valley knows what it's doing financially, you really have to rethink things. And then this weekend underscores that, you know, whether it's the silly tweets from the VCs claiming this is Armageddon and uh, I'm never going to be able to buy another winery again um, or or just the fact that all of these companies, the, the investee companies from the venture capital world seem not to have a treasury management function that's even remotely finance 101 is, is remarkable to me. I mean, in Silicon Valley, uh, itself, I sent something around this morning that, that someone flagged me on. Silicon Valley itself had a cash sweep function, uh, and I'm told the minimums were were uh, somewhere around five million. So, so literally, you could be sweeping your excess cash into treasuries or money market funds every night. Um, you needed, you know, if you're running a cash management program, you keep a couple of months worth of of, of possible needs in checking. And you keep the rest in treasuries or, or, or uh, otherwise uh, non-deposit, uh, uninsured deposit categories. I mean, that's just basic business. And these people all seem kind of stunned that this has happened. And I don't get it. And I don't get where the advice from the financial gurus at the venture capital firms was to tell people not to do this. I mean, everybody is sort of s- stuck in uninsured deposits in a way that, that, that just makes my head spin. And, and so what kind of advice are these guys getting um, from their sponsors? That's one of the things they're supposed to do. I don't get it. Anyway, I, I, and, and the self-serving, the self-serving, you know, the Fed's got to bail us all out. Otherwise, Armageddon's coming, whatever, is just nonsense. Um, this is not a systemic issue. I think it is symptomatic of what's happening with duration and rates, but this is not a, a, a uh, contagion effort to the banking system and the financial system. Now, it may be uncomfortable for some people on Sand Hill Road, 
but this is not that. And so, again, more akin to Orange County or LTCM in my mind uh, than than anything we saw at Bear Stearns or or Lehman. So I think, and by the way, I suspect they're going to find a buyer uh, before the market opens. Um, based on our analysis of the deposits and the value and what's there, I suspect a Wells Fargo or someone will bid for the corpus of what's left at a very small premium. Uh, that won't help the shareholders of the extinguished bank, but, uh, but it may help resolve the deposit issue. So I suspect that, that you know, a lot of this may be a moot point by, by you know, 6 o'clock tonight or 9.30 tomorrow. Anyway. That's it. Everybody have a good Sunday. Jim, real quick before you go, um, based off of your comments earlier on the commercial real estate side, is, is that something that you, maybe not acutely, but as this cycle matures, is that a potential source of a systemic concern of yours? Yeah, we have we have a huge short in, in commercial real estate and have had, you know, for the last couple of years. And I, I think that, that what people don't get is that there are a lot of business models that are de facto long duration bond models, whether it's commercial real estate, whether it's you know solar panel leasing. You know, I, I, I can go down my portfolio and point to one, one situation after another where it's basically a bond proxy, and yet it's not technically a bank or what you would consider to be a, a, a financial. And yet this is what years and years and years of ZERP has brought us. And, and a lot of these business models are literally insolvent. Um, people just haven't figured it out yet because they, you know, they trade as REITs or they trade as green energy plays or what have you. But literally, take a look at, take a, look at a company like Sunrun, which you know, I know uh, others have talked about. And this is a company that's sitting on billions and billions of dollars of 20 and 30 year second mortgages, which are the solar panel leases at a cash yield of about three and a half percent and financing it, you know, in the debt and equity markets where the bonds are yielding more than 12%. I mean, there's all kinds of stories out there like that, that just simply make no sense in any kind of normalized rate environment where we were at zero rates and people could play kind of silly long duration accounting games. In Sunrun's case, they use uh, they use a discount model to discount future cash flows back at 5% with their bonds yielding 12. It's insanity. Um, and so then there's lots of them out there. There's tons of them or just projects that don't work at five and six and 7% interest rates that were financed at two and three. And, and, and then you could just look across the spectrum at commercial real estate where any kind of cash out for equity is not possible anymore at six and seven percent mortgage rates because deals were done at three and four caps so the market's frozen and and you know that is where there may be the first credit risk on bank portfolios at regionals is is reasonably large commercial loan portfolios that uh where the keys start coming back in a meaningful way you know, we've seen it in office already. We saw it in, um, uh, we saw it in, in retail pre-pandemic, and that'll spread. I mean, you know, warehouse deals don't work done at two percent. Don't work at six percent. I don't care whether you have a tenant that's 
AAA or not. And so those kinds of things is where I would look for duration risk in your portfolios out there as there's a lot of hidden bonds masquerading as operating businesses. That's it, everybody. I, I got to hop. But anyway, good to hear you all. Thanks, Jim. Have a good weekend. Just on Sunrun, they have an $80 million exposure to SVB as well. Yeah, so I, based off of what Jim had said, he'd, he probably didn't hear my uh, earlier um, Frankenstein of, of 30 and 73, but I wrote something back in December, um, and I, I quoted a piece from Megan McArdle from something she wrote in uh, April of, of 09, which was obviously ill-timed given where um, we were at in the cycle. But I think it's applicable now in a way. Again, these things are piecemeal. They're not exactly the same. So I'm just going to read it real quick, um, a section that I quoted. I don't want to push the Great Depression analogy too far, but what's surprising when you go back to primary sources from 1930 is the optimism. I don't mean to imply that everyone thinks things are just swell, but while you know that they are facing the worst economic decade of the 20th century, they don't. They're expecting something more like the recession that followed World War I, I would argue 2008. People are cutting back, but they're still spending, particularly because companies are slashing prices to move inventory. It was the long grind of the years that followed and the catastrophe of the second banking crisis that scarred them permanently. And this shows up in the economic stats and the stock market, stock market, which did not, as we like to imagine, simply decline in a straight line. Relative to Chanos's comments, it's surprising that it's taking this long in certain ways. It's it, it's that lingering optimism i think that's emblematic of where we're at in this cycle with a lot of the stuff that again is fairly obvious um but i think lacks historical context because of um people haven't seen this kind of thing in a long time well to, to the point you know about credit just imagine this september of 2007 high yield credit spreads are at all-time lows or 20-year lows or for all intents and purposes all-time lows in September of 2007, the reality is, as I've been harping on forever, markets do not look forward, do not discount something until it happens. Most bear markets begin going back 100 years when unemployment claims start ripping higher, not six months or nine months or 12 months before. You know, it's black and white if you looked at a chart of it. So you know, the, the reality why credit's so tight now, credit spreads is because people think there's no landing, soft landing, which always happens between the end of a tightening cycle, which we're not out yet, maybe we are now, but we'll see, and that beginning of rising unemployment. And that's the behavioral aspect, again, that literally doesn't change every single cycle. But we should also be looking at profits and default rates before we look at spreads. Um, and default rates are extremely low still uh, I assume they'll double or triple over the next two years but you know the reality is that uh, default rates are low so why should credit spreads blow out yet yeah well that, I agree I'm not saying they should blow out I agree with that they've bounced around in the last six months you know at the highs of the panic around the UK pension issue and China not being open and Europe having a crisis that all went away, and that brought spreads back down to, you know, high yield spreads down to four and a half. And the reason default rates are low, even though 
they're slowly starting to rise. You know, we're look at con- looking at delinquency rates for consumers, for autos, for bankruptcies is starting to pick up. Is we're we're still in this inflation illusion that's keeping revenue ratios to costs, however you want to say it, margins or, or compensation ratios, extremely high, which either inflation has to stay high to keep that high or inflation comes down as growth slows and the tightening cycle does what it always do and, and hits unit demand even further. So no, I agree with you. I agree with you, Bobby. That's, that's definitely, but you know, is that, is that persisting, you know, a, as that changes, markets will reflect it as, as the facts change, the markets will change, but it won't happen six months ahead. So I think we're saying the same thing. So can I ask yeah. a question? Does this pull forward? Like, so, I mean, we're talking about $170 billion in uninsured deposits, right? I mean, it, it certainly seems like they're going to try to get them covered, but does this pull defaults forward for, I mean, Roku has 487 million in SVB. Roblox has 150 million. Sunrun has 80 million. Ginkgo Bioworks has 74 million. Rocket Labs has 38 million. So does, I mean, if the, if the solution is time, right? Does this pull forward defaults? I, I don't think so. I don't think this is going to be a credit event. I mean, that, that, that I think this is this is what I was saying. This is this is a head fake, a distraction from the stuff that Chanos was just talking about relative to the actual uh, risk to the cycle, which which the regionals are hugely exposed to, which is the, is the commercial real estate market, um, and that really has not much to do directly with SVB. Um, so to me, SVB is kind of a quixotic, you know emblematic of an extreme version of of the um uh the, the duration mismatch but um and that is important but that that will become more important as credit issues emerge in commercial real estate um because that really does hit their balance sheet on on the asset side yeah that's like saying over the last 12 months the same same point about employment like most of the jobs that have been uh lost have been in in the tech sector that had probably zero bearing on the Fed. Uh, and so this is also sim- similarly idiosyncratic to KFAP's point. This is not the broader impact of the Fed's tightening cycle. This is the weak links and the excesses that blow up first. So I'd, I'd bucket this with more of the, the crypto stuff that blew up or um, all the excesses from COVID that we saw that have had to see some pain first. Yeah, I just I, I just wanted to throw out a quick, comment um because again bait you know this, that's mark cojones and jim chanos that have both said that they expect a buyer maybe to um show up uh so again i, I think pe- people that haven't traded these kind of market environments um the most bearish thing that could turn into something very sloppy would be if there is some sort of transaction that supposedly takes the risk short term of this acute event and we get a spike and then it reverses <laughs> uh, again because pe- people that traded 08, you, you might remember the TARP vote. Uh, it was the the one that passed uh, that caused the short term spike, and then that rolled over, and it was bombs away. So uh, when the market goes down on supposed good news, is when you know you're in trouble. So Amy, one of the differences between here and 2008 is the positives are going to get 50 cents cash on a dollar on Monday morning in the worst case. So I don't see any sort of immediate pull forward of, of defaults here. 
Um, in 2008, by the way, I was a uh, second year uh, analyst uh, trying to keep the, um, uh, the, the fixed income analytics system up at Lehman Brothers as everybody was hitting the refresh button in their point applications or in their bond index stuff. Um, the, the difference there was it was a $700 billion balance sheet. There was a bunch of commercial paper and people were stuck in bankruptcy court. So there are some differences here. And I just don't see a systemic issue. And, and I would add, while, while they shouldn't do it, I think the big issue is the uninsured depositors at SIBB. And it looks to me like they're going to backstop them all. They shouldn't. Um, I agree with Mark on it. They shouldn't do it, but they're going to do it. And I think this is going to stabilize the bank stocks temporarily. Uh, and, and, you know, we'll go into the Tuesday CPI. And that that could uh, that could change things again. But I, I think Monday things are going to stabilize because they're they're going to throw everything they have at it. And uh, and and so I don't think this will be systemic. I agree with Jim on that. But I, 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 would... yeah, I actually agree with you guys. I was as I was saying earlier, like I'm thinking of maybe getting along a few of these like Schwab and is looking interesting, like. I, I agree with you. That's why I was asking the question. But I also think that this puts the spotlight on the race and um, mismatch. And if you go back to prior banking situations, uh, all of a sudden the regulators um, wake up and they hyper-focus on something because of a, an event like this. And you can be sure that the marching orders are being given right now, you know, to you know, get your asses uh, off your home computer and get into these banks and uh, see what's going on here because these duration mismatches are as plain as day and they should be showing up on the system. So, uh, you know, duration will become a hotter topic uh, over the coming months. Agreed. Hey, Cantrell, I just had a quick question going back to your jobless claims uh, comment. Uh, I'm curious if you have data off the top of your head as far as uh, what claims do uh, versus the start of, of the S&P. Do, do they have to be up a certain percent year over year? Uh, and then, so that's A. B, <clears throat> how does that fold into how you think about the market here? I Do you see the bear as starting last January or do you think it's more kind of starting uh, here in February? Uh, sure. Uh, so I guess one by one, um, there's no magic number with claims. Um, you know, I think I think a lot of people try to do that last year when claims were up a certain percentage, uh, which had been consistent with, you know. Uh, so, yeah, playing with numbers to try to find out what the, you know, the magic level on anything is kind of a fool's game because, you know, things are not static over time and claims particularly is not is not exactly um, a data point that you can compare across time. You know, obviously think about it, the workforce has increased dramatically in the last 50 years, though claims has been pretty much a, a broadly a sideways trend, if not lower today than it's, you know, it's ever been. So, I, I, you know, there's no magic number. I mean, ultimately, it's when claims rise become a problem which pushes interest rates down uh and i'll touch on that in a second and, and when credit becomes a problem so it's when it's it's not that claims are rising but it's the catalysts that 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 creates um and so i don't i don't 
there's no magic number that I'm looking for, um, but it's, you know, it's rising and per, for a persistent amount of time. Historically, so you, so last year, yeah, the markets peaked. Um, as I said earlier, markets reflect something right when it's in front of them. And a recession was not in front of us at all last year. And that's not why the market went down. The market went down because we had a spike in interest rates and inflation, as you all know. Uh, and though much of Wall Street may only see stocks down, recession risks up, and vice versa, that's just not the reality of, of the financial markets. Stocks can go up and down for a lot of reasons that have nothing to do with recession, imminent recession risks. So uh, I think last year we had a bond bear market, equities were the victim. Um, and you know we're still in a bond. You know we're still in a bond bear market. Maybe maybe the peak was a couple of days ago from this, or maybe not. Um, but ultimately, that's what we've been whipping around equities as employment. You know, so any forward-looking indicator that leads unemployment claims or unemployment rate, any of them that ha- and when I say any, I mean things that have historical consistencies and that makes sense such as a deterioration in housing or a flatter yield curve or a tightening cycle, et cetera. Um, they're all kind of indicating that uh, employment deteriorates the back half this year into, into the first half of next year. Uh, so that's why I think a recession starts some point in the back of uh, back half of this year, not, not today, not yesterday. Um, what's going to be really interesting. And again, it all depends. It's all path dependent here, but the Fed never pauses because unemployment claims are rising. That's what causes them to cut historically. And again, if you look back in history, 90% of bear markets, you know, I'm excluding 98, I'm excluding 1987, I'm excluding COVID. Those bear markets started, or I should say bull markets peaked right near the low of claims rising. You know, not the day, the week, but, you know, obviously it's a weekly number. It's volatile. But as claims start to move up, and again, I'll, I'll post a chart of this. You can see it. It's pretty black and white. I'm not going to mark the day. That's when bear markets start. And that usually also coincides with earnings estimates starting to get sharply hacked. What's unique today, not, not an environment we've had, is that, you know, ironically, employment is one of the problems today. You know, problems great, create market weakness problems getting resolved create market strength um inf- since inflation is the problem and, then, and the inflation issue is largely around employment to this point as employment weakens initially i mean we saw it on thursday claims went up stocks went up and then obviously the focus changed so i don't know the answer but there's a probability greater than we've ever seen because we've not been in this backdrop, that as the, you know, the first 7,500,000 5, increases in claims could create another pivot rally for equities. Because everyone will then say, oh, look, the Fed's definitely done. Hey, they're going to now cut rates, yada, yada, yada. I don't know how long that lasts. Again, it's path dependent when it starts, where the market is at the time it starts. But then it can, it's going to keep going. It's not going to just stop at, at 300,000 or 350. It's going to keep going. And as credit reacts to that negatively, it's going to be a huge problem for equities. And so just, you know, when rates come down and lift equities, sometimes it happens for a good reason because inflation is coming down and credit spreads tighten, which is what happened over the winter into the early uh, part of this year. When rates go down because of problems, whether it's a banking problem or unemployment's deteriorating, um, stocks go down. So that's 
I think I answered everything you had asked me. Thanks. I, I, I can compliment a little. Yeah, I'll just add one thing to Mike's comments is um, so even if you take 87, 98, uh, 15, 16, and uh, late 18, um, so those all uh, accompanied growth rate cycle downturns, right? So that, that they ended up in so-called soft landings, uh, even 94 with the bond market, the surprise rate hikes at the time, um, uh uh, so basically the differentiator is you get the law this is why, you know, Mike and I kind of started off at the beginning of, of the first space talking about leading indicators. So the differentiator is that all of those so-called soft landings, even the ones that had inverted yield curves, right, were differentiated because long leading indicators turned back up in, in you know, a diffuse uh, dispersion, dispersed way, right? And with duration, that's what the NBER would call the three Ds. Um, so those preceded the soft landing period. So when when Powell pivoted infamously in December of 18, um, leading indicators had already started to turn back up. Um, so again, causation correlation. Did he engineer the soft landing that time? No. Uh, things the cycle the way the cycle was already kind of worked out he didn't make it worse <laughs> um but you know and that that's why the 94 95 cycle was so different is because greenspan who was a student of jeffrey moore um who was the guy who started ecri um and was the you know kind of godfather of leading indicators was a devotee at that time of leading indicators. His framework is largely leading indicator driven. And he tightened proactively when almost no one was expecting it because of a future inflation gauge that ECRI has was pointing up. Um, and he basically did it and snuffed out the inflation cycle because of, of being proactive. That's pretty much the only cycle we have on record where the Fed has acted proactively uh, and engineered, one could argue, using leading indicators, um, some kind of quote unquote soft landing. The rest of it kind of been, you know, correlation as opposed to causation. That them kind of winging it and ha it happened to work out <laughs> versus, um, you know, them being the Wizard of Oz and, and actually, uh, you know, uh, uh, engineering it. That's a, that's a great point, KFAB, because the Fed started hiking. If you look at 94, the economy was reaccelerating, and they started right when the economy was reaccelerating, quite the opposite of what we had last year. Um, but again, the, 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 the only consistent differentiators I've found historically that separates the 12 tightening cycles since 1960, whether you go into soft landing, which happened four times, or a hard landing recession eight times, was whether or not banks were tightening or easing lending standards. So throughout the entire Fed tightening cycle of 94 and 16, 17, and 18, when Powell was tightening, if you look at lending standards from the Fed's senior loan officer survey, banks were getting incrementally easier and easier. Uh, and, and so that 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 so I, I always call bullshit when people say, well, the Fed engineered a soft landing. I think it's 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 the stacking of probabilities, which we which we also started talking about the whole the beginning onset of this call. And if you get the Fed to do the same thing as commercial banks to do uh, a tighten at the same time, which we have that condition today and before every other one of the last eight recessions, you've only compounded your probabilities of of tightening and obviously of recession. KFab, um, 
Equity's future inflation gauge right now is decelerating, but it's still very high. So from your commentary, yeah. I, I, I would I would almost conclude you think the Fed is I think it's pretty clear you think the Fed is over tightening, but what would you recommend in the context of, of the FIG being still absolutely too high? Yeah, I, I think when I call this the Frankenstein of 30 and 73, that's the 73 part, uh, which is um, the likelihood is that the FIG and subsequently inflation will not drop sharply until you start to get the real teeth of credit problems, of unemployment, um, like what most people associate with acute recession, but oftentimes don't take place until well into a recession. Yeah. Um, so, again, if you go back to the 73, 74 uh, cycle, inflation didn't peak until like two thirds of the way through the recession. And then inflation didn't bottom, I think, until late 76, yep. uh, like a, a year and a half after the inflation was over and you're well into recovery. So th th this is it was really the 70s that blew up Friedman and and the monetarists um, thinking that velocity was stable. Um, and they had, you know, again, they didn't understand that there were discrete business and inflation cycles, that they were separate, related, obviously, but those cycles are, are, are different. Um, so I think that's where a lot of the, the, the confusion that's going on in the current cycle is that, you know, people don't recognize, in, uh, recessions are inherently disinflationary, um, at barring some kind of currency you know, like Venezuela, right? If you have a currency collapse, obviously. Um, but outside of that scenario, they're, they're pretty much intrinsically um, disinflationary. It's just a question of, you know, the, the, the metaphor I've used, it's like a, a python eating the rat, right? It just, it takes a while for it to work through. Um, and, you know, this one in particular has kind of unique characteristics because of the craziness that took place in 2020 and 2021. And, 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 and the, the other analog with 7374, and again, it's not exact, but it, it gives you the neighborhood, the conceptually that these things can happen, is that employment didn't roll over until uh, it was eight months into the recession. So, yeah, I actually disagree with Michael, but I, I think, um, you know, I think we, when they go, end up going back and backdating the recession, I, I think it's plausible that it'll end up getting dated somewhere between December and March. Um, because of what's going on in the cyclical industries, meaning that, you know, the, the other stuff's coming, but some of the downturns that are starting to occur in those parts of the economy um, are, are really getting some so, velocity. And I, I think in recent weeks, you're starting to see some of this really rush forward. Okay, Fab, um, I want you, I have a question regarding the confusion that you're pointing to. And, and by the way, this is a good time to mention uh, to, for a commercial that Neely has a a line of uh, designer T-shirts called Respect the Lag, uh, which will be coming out. But um, if you look at the lags of not only the tightening of the uh, stimulus that we had, including fiscal, um, do you see a lot of confusion out there? Big time. Uh, and that's part of what I started talking about last summer was the increased risk of policy mistakes because of the reservoir of, you know, excess savings, quote unquote, um, it, uh, in the consumer balance sheet and and the flush uh, uh, corporate balance sheets coming out of the pandemic. Um, 
so again, that, that just comes back to time and we're, you know, Neely's done some great work on this since you mentioned her. Um, you know, we're, and I, I've exchanged comments with her before. I, there seems to be a waterfall approaching this summer for the consumer, um, with a confluence of factors and, and you're still going to have, uh, th this is one of the points I've been making since this last summer is that th the distribution of all these macro data are important, meaning that people look at averages, like the average consumer balance sheet. And that's why you're starting to see cracks on the surface with like, you know, people under 40 auto delinquencies. I mean, you, you know, people were in deep doo-doo when they're going, you know, delinquent on their auto loans, right? So, um, you know, that... I'm sure you remember, Bobby, back in, in 07 and 08, people were like, oh, you know, people will turn their keys in on their house, but not their car, <laughs> right? Um, right? So, you know, we're starting to see people turn their keys back in on their car. And, and, and so there's a lot of people that are having severe financial distress right now. And with the food stamp program coming off, um, again, Neely's written and talked about this way more. And this, she's, she's the person I've learned most of this from or heard it from. Um, so if you want to come up, Neil, you're welcome to, obviously. But, um, you know, you've got multiple things rolling off, me Medicaid, distributed health care from the pandemic period, student loans potentially. And then you, know, you kind of have an intersection. I've, I've read some research on this between a cross of decelerating nominal GDP with uh, that excess savings. And that, that waterfall moment is kind of this summer. Um, so all these things are kind of lining up. Um, and, and that's also probably when you're going to start to see, you know, employment turn with some velocity anyway. Um, so okay, Fab, I, just one last question that I'll, I'll step down just while you're speaking. Would you would you agree that the that the Fed is unlikely to cut in response to this, this recession? Or do you think that's just uh, tough talk from them? And I know them not cutting. That's a discussion nah. for months from now. But I'm curious what your thought is. I think eventually they will. Um, I think, uh, I forget who said it earlier. I, I, I think they do have, you know, I, again, the, the piece that I wrote that quoted the, uh, the Megan McArdle uh, article from 0809, I titled it A Young Pal, yep. no, uh, awesome. meaning that I think that, yeah, I, I think that the obsession with not being Burns increases the risk of being young <laughs> in 1930. Um, so I, I think they're going to try to stay tight and allow, you know, Schumpeter's uh, uh, forces to, Schumpeterian forces to eradicate things as, as Cahodes was saying should happen. And I agree with that, but that's going to be incredibly painful. Um, and I don't think they appreciate the nonlinearity of the risks this cycle. Uh, so I think it's going to get out of control real fast and that they'll, they will ultimately um, turn, but that may not be until you know, late this year, early next year, like the timing of that is tough because you, you know, the, the, that's a lesson of when these cycles turn is that you don't really, you know, why didn't things tank at sock gen? Why didn't things tank with Bear Stearns? Why didn't thing, you know, why didn't Freddie and Fanny cause a crash? Right. Why, why was it lean? Well, with, with complex adaptive systems, it's inherently random and chaotic. Like you don't know what the ultimate catalyst is going to be that goes that, you know, that kind of phase transition into chaos. Um, so p part of the battle, I argue, is appreciating that you can't know in advance, but understanding that what the risk distribution is. Um, so I, I don't think the, the Fed doesn't think in those terms. Mainstream economists don't think that most of Wall Street doesn't think in those terms. That's why all their models are bad and they always blow up during those periods. Um, so 
I, I think it's inevitable they do. I just suspect it'll be too late. And then, you know, I, I think that the interesting conversation to have with that is what it looks like coming out of this. And it, this goes back to, you know, whether they unleash a different um, inflation dynamic, not only the Fed, but the eventual fiscal response, uh, which, you know, gets complicated because of presidential election coming up. And so all those dynamics, I suspect it'll take longer than most expect um and that will compound how bad this could get hence my 1930 73 frankenstein framework well to your point to your point about coming out the other side of this i just i just don't know how they they eradicate the inflation problem without letting the economy go through a recession on its own and restructure itself on its own without easing because that's how inflation came back in the 70s is in the next business yeah well again Again, the difference in the 70s is you had a much better demographics and you, the velocity of money was stable. Um, so, again, this, this, this is where you've got, a, I call it the Lacey Hunt paradigm, which is, you know, excess debt, demographics not great, um, productivity, trend growth. All those things are going the wrong direction and have been. Um, so I, I think the bigger question is whether or not you get some kind of dual shift in monetary and fiscal Meaning that if the Fed cuts and they do QE, the market might go berserk for a little period of time. But I don't think that's going to change the underlying growth and in inflation dynamics. Um, I think it's if it's some kind of major shift in fiscal along with, and some of that's going to be built in because of just, you know, <laughs> what demographics mean and how much they're going to spend on a baseline basis with Medicare and Social Security, like, you know, just look at the CBO projections and those don't even build in any kind of recession in the next six, seven years. Um, so we could very quickly go back to three, four trillion dollar deficits. And that's without them going, you know, big on quote unquote stimulus. Uh, that would just be a severe recession. So that's what I'm more thinking of when I, you know, and again, I wrote a piece last year on that um, uh, about a shift in regime and that if, if if the pandemic normalized direct stimulus through household fiscal basically sending stimmy checks and, and it migrates into some kind of ubi thing um that to me is a regime change that could start you know an inflation um shift that would maybe overwhelm some of these other uh demographic and debt issues um, KFAB, I think a, a, an important thing um, to keep an eye on is as the federal debt grows, and let's say it goes from $35 trillion to $40 trillion in a short period of time, or, uh, and if the banking uh, system shrinks a little bit in terms of deposits shrinking, assets shrinking, I mentioned before we have 25% of U.S. banks are in securities, not lending. And I expect some of that to uh, shrink as well. Do you think it'll be harder to conduct QE if the ratio of debt to bank uh, deposits and reserves increases? Yeah, I, I think it could. And that's part of why I think you'll, that, that what 2020 may end up having retrospectively kicked off is fiscal dominance over monetary um so that there's there we're going to start um and you know again they're not completely out to lunch so that they're, they're going to recognize 
what happened to a degree on QE and, you know, the over use of uh, monetary relative to fiscal in all of this. Um, so if they, based on a lot of reasons, but I, I think what you just said could be another part of the contributing factors where you, the pendulum would swing back towards, you know, fiscal. And I, the other part of this, you know, again, this, this is more so my cynical view is that, um, you know, the, the, I, I think we're, we're in a pendulum swinging back towards like feudal um, kleptocracy. <laughs> um, you know, the natural order historically is not what the U.S. has been, um, you know, post-World War II for the most part. So, um, you know, as that kind of the, these large demographic issues globally, um, and it is global in the developed world, as the pie is not growing anymore, you get into like a kleptocratic regime um and you know how that gets carved up is, is a kind of a dominant thing and um i i think that that's an underlying thing and you know the vig on them being able to do that when i say them kind of the you know the powers that be the ruling classes the the, the lords of the feudal system um you know the vig on them being able to do it goes up and that's why i would you know that sending out more kind of systemic um, money to the the population as a way to say, hey, you know, you're getting something out of this while we're off spending trillions in foreign wars and, you know, uh, onshoring and subsidizing that. And like just the, the, the gravy train of the money coming out of Washington, D.C. with the size of, of, of um, uh, the budget. Um, you know, I think their, their ability to continue to do that is going to come with a cost. And I think a lot of that cost is going to be kind of, you know, sending out money. All right. Uh, Daniel, if you have a comment to make, uh, I'll give you the last word. Thank you so much, Cantro. The only comment I wanted to make was for a layman like myself who dabbles in the market. Um, I just wanted to say, and this is not kissing butt or anything. I really appreciate these spaces and you guys, all of you experts, taking your time out. And I know we it helps us all, but for sure I've learned like a shit ton just listening in on these spaces. Thank you for having me on stage. Um, and I just, I appreciate all your guys' input. It, it's, uh, I've learned so much. Thank you. All right, we all appreciate that. And uh, a shit ton is an academic word slightly bigger than a shitload um all right well everyone it's 4 30 it's been a while it's been a weekend it's been a week uh have a good weekend have a rest of the weekend have a good week and uh, i'm sure we'll see you all again soon thanks thanks for hosting cantrell